Hello, and welcome to the Television Spotlight on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll be having a spoiler-filled discussion about a television show that we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I'm joined by my sister, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on the second season of Blood and Treasure. The first season, which was 13, 12, 13 episodes, was on CBS back in 2019. It kind of got derailed with that whole pandemic thing, and now three years later, over on Paramount Plus, got a a 13-episode second season. Well, and this is a show that really makes great advantage of location shooting. Yeah, this is a almost, I want to say, old school adventure. It's more of a movie style adventure kind of a thing. Yeah. It's got the globe trotting. It's got the the action, the heists, the, I don't say the intrigue, but there's a little of that kind of stuff going on. There's an aspect of Indiana Jones meets leverage. Yes, I think that's a great way to put it. Particularly season two. And if I were Paramount Plus, I would be doing... A behind the scenes because like they do the uh the behind the scenes show for trek absolutely i would be doing a travel log type one for this show i think there's two or three behind the scenes sort of angles you could take one is absolutely the travel stuff because they're in rome at the vatican they're in hong kong they're literally all over the place and just the challenges of filming there the the what there is to see there the local cuisine whatever with the locations they find are just eye-catching in so many fantastic ways. Mm-hmm. The establishing shots they use. From a cinematography perspective, even if you were to ignore the story and just look at, the, again, the establishing shots and stuff like that, it's beautiful. Yeah. And in a way that a lot of modern television it just doesn't do. And, and frankly, not even just modern TV, even stuff 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. would use, you know, here's some some stock footage of the plane landing at the airport and pick up the story from there or whatever. Mm-hmm. And from a globetrotting perspective, this just had some amazing stuff. Story-wise, I felt it, it felt different this season than first, but part of it is it's been three years since we've watched that first season. Well, what I recall of first season was this feeling of we find this treasure which is the clue or hint we need to tell us to find that treasure. It's it's going from one treasure to another, to another, to another. It was much more of an archaeological show at that yeah. point. Yeah, and it was it was like a, a collection of treasures combined together mm-hmm. to really give us that final exhibit, the Anthony and Cleopatra Museum exhibit at the end. Whereas this was all a hunt for really one treasure. One treasure, and we find it a ways, you know, about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through, and then just kind of keep track of it at that point. This had more of a feeling of heists and that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. And almost, I don't say a procedural aspect, but let's go to this location, look for clues of where the thing went next. Well, And we did some of that season one with Cleopatra. Yes, yes. Chasing down, it was last seen here, from here it went there. Mm -hmm. But it felt like there was more of a progression. We got a tangible something every time almost. Well, yeah. What amused me in season one is we're getting kind of 
we find the the tomb and then we find the the outer casing that the sarcophagus was in then we find the sarcophagus then we find the mummy so it's kind of almost um, the Rus- russian nesting doll sort of yeah, yeah yeah whereas this we're we're following almost the the trail of provenance and yeah. literally walking the footsteps that the thing went through and getting there and saying okay so we're 50 years too late we're 70 years too late part of the difference though is it felt like in the first season they were having to do go to the dig sites yes in a more archaeological sense whereas here it's following again the providence the paper trail mm-hmm. that sort of a thing it was still good mm-hmm. but there were also a number of times this season and it's funny cuz it's a completely different production company different writing crew but like shaw at times <laughs> it could have been hardison from leverage it really could have yeah they they have the same mentality and approach at times at one point shaw is on speakerphone to where he's talking to the rest of the characters and i'm like wait did he just hardison style control the video on the tv well in one it's like don't roll your eyes at me as the person's rolling their eyes kind of yeah because they know each other so well and it's it didn't feel like they were lifting from leverage, but it had a very, very similar feel at times. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like they had rewritten the character of Shaw or any of these others. No. To do these sorts of things. And three-year gap between, again, a little rough from an audience member perspective to come back into it. I don't know how it was for the production crew or the, the actors and such, but I really did feel that they say, what, four months elapsed early on. Mm-hmm. They got back into the characters, reset the scene pretty well, reestablished things. We get a sense of kind of what did and didn't happen in those four months, and we move on from there. And we got a few people that I didn't think had to come back, Simon Hardwick uh, being chief among them, Yeah, but brilliantly used this season. And everything at the end of the season wasn't tied off in a neat little bow, but it, it concluded. Yes. And it's one, if they don't get a third season, I don't feel gypped, but they have a springboard for a third season ready to go. Yeah. And not that they have to go in this particular way, but we know who's still in play. We know what their status quo is. A little time can elapse to change that up if you need to. People could say, oh, I got bored. I went back to do this or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I would expect the core four to be back as well as as Simon in some respect. Yeah. Well, I mean- Lexi and Danny are great characters, interesting, mm-hmm. fun. But really, Shaw and Chuck, which season one were come out of nowhere and surprise you fun characters, they amped them up this season. Well, and Chuck practically got his own storyline for yeah. a good... I mean, his storyline intersected with Lexi and, and Danny's quite a bit, but was also off on his own quite a bit. Yeah. In other words, they could have filmed his stuff either before or after the other people did their part or whatever. They'd have to obviously overlap for a bit. But they did it in a way that it didn't feel like Jesus is ever going to connect. Because it was always thematically tying into the same adventure and stuff, two separate kind of investigations or routes they were taking. And again, just did some some great stuff. in the who can we trust, who can we not trust, which again, they did quite a bit the first season. Mm-hmm. Played here in some different ways, set up some very different dynamics between a couple of key characters as that rotated through the season. Well, and Lexi, season one, was 
the thief that Danny is determined to prove to her, you you can be on the side of the angels. You mm-hmm. don't have to be committing the crimes, etc. And for most of this season, I I guess I was taking for granted that Shaw had put most of his criminal activity behind him. And I was not really appreciating that Shaw didn't fully feel redeemed. Shaw didn't feel redeemed, and he was kind of on the, the line of could be tempted back to the dark side if he wasn't mm-hmm. careful. And he was aware of that. Yeah. Which I loved. But then we also got Violet introduced of, oh, is this going to be the redemption arc this season? Yeah. And that had some very interesting aspects to it. Uh, we also got two other characters introduced at Shaw's Bar. Yes. Uh, Vince, the PI, who I thought did it. That, that actor did a terrific job. Fun character. Mm-hmm. And then Han, the bartender. Steen Sealer. I was going to say the exact thing. Stole every scene he was in pretty much. Yeah. And those two kind of got written out around, what, episode 11? Yeah. But with a very clear, hey, we're not going to be back here for a bit. Take care of the bar. And a graceful sign-off for the characters. Because mm-hmm. there were some other episodes earlier in the season where it's like, oh, we didn't see Chuck this time. Or we didn't see Han this time. Or yeah, we always see Danny and Lexi and stuff. We don't always see Shaw. Well, there was one point where we didn't see Shaw, and it's kind of the, okay, we have to go to Laos, we have to go on this adventure, and it was almost a, if we take Shaw, we have one person too many. Yes. And the scenes were were good. They were full enough with the characters they had. I will say I was surprised that Lindsay Wagner was in that episode. I almost took that as she wanted to stay active as an actor for the health benefits or whatever. And maybe, maybe not. I don't know. She did a a fine job, but it could have just as easily been half a million different people and stuff. And that's how I felt about it, too. It I don't want to say it didn't feel special, but you know what I mean? It it wasn't one of those where it played out and you're like, oh, wow, they really got the right actor for the right role. It wasn't one of those where, geez, they had to get her for it. Yeah. It didn't feel like stunt casting. It also didn't feel like a waste to get her. I'm not saying they did anything special with her, but she did a good job. She's capable of so much more. I think it's not the kind of character she typically plays, and that may have been part of why either she was interested in doing it or why they went for her. And that could be. I mean, I can't help but wonder if there was someone who was thinking, you know, if the bionic woman, A, didn't have bionics, but B, grew up, this is the character she'd be. No, I didn't see it that way. Kind of the, you know, she, she's she got the guns and she's defending those who need help. But yeah, to me, it was, it was just kind of a, anyone could have been, it didn't, it didn't scream, wow, right casting. And I, I don't I know if that's that. It didn't seem right casting, wrong casting. It's, oh, she's doing this. That's interesting. Yeah. Not a, yeah, they had to get her for this kind of a thing. I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I was intrigued that they got two at least two people to reprise their role from the first season Mm -hmm. they got mark valley who played danny's dad got him back and then david plactow or whatever from flashpoint Mm. he was in the first season playing i think the same character that uh grandfather reese or whatever oh interesting because i think that was how at one point when the sarcophagus moved because it was oh, that's Jay right. Reese's father that was going after him hunt to begin with. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. So to even get a couple of people like that, in, in Plotow's case, it was a scene on a film. Yeah. 
Mark Valley was in two episodes and such. To pull them back, again, three years have gone by, mm-hmm. getting pretty much the whole cast regulars back. There was one other they could have kept from the first, but I don't think was available or had COVID. I don't know why, but something happened. But that's why we got another character in place. Mm-hmm. So I thought they did a, a good job kind of keeping the band together and just getting a second season after three years. Yeah. Is is impressive. I really do hope they go for a third season. And I think they've already set the precedent. They don't have to do it immediately. I'd yeah. like them to. Yeah. Again, fun action adventure show with a different flavor and style. Again, it's one of those where you end one scene, you, you've got the map of, oh, they're in Rome. It pulls out, it goes down, and oh, now we're in Hong Kong or, or wherever. Well, and I do like kind of the the trail of this all comes together without, I don't want to say it feeling like a grand conspiracy, but feeling like we're watching a plan unfold. There were a couple of things that I think they left unanswered about the Great Con. I have many questions about the Great Con. I mean, the Great Con seemed to be simultaneously in prison and getting recruited by the CIA. Well, let's clarify. It's Great Khan, K-H-A-N, as in Genghis Khan. Yes. Or Genghis Khan, or however yes. Lexi would pronounce it. I, I appreciated at one point they actually mentioned, oh, we're pronouncing it. Well, she is, you know, kind of a that way thing. But there's an, also an aspect of it where I think it could be considered the Great Khan, C-O-N, in terms of you really expect us to buy some of this, because there's this great master plan. And they explain at the end what looked like just a random terror attack here, here, and here, but oh, we know there's more to it. We find out what the more to it is. But to put all of those things in play, to be able to do all of those things, there's some backstory to be had as to how does this organization build up. And I think they feel they did some of that with a little hand-waving at the, the end. Well, they feel they did that actually earlier on with the whole, she got the Yakuza together yeah. with the this, with the that. So Everybody brought little pieces of information in. Well, and when she was talking how she'd flip the handler and all that kind of stuff later. So I think they yeah. they felt they'd done that, but I almost think they could have done a whole episode of flashbacks at various points as the organization is really kind of coming together and, and all of this. Now granted, if they were to do that in this kind of a show, it would have to be with a framing sequence of them digging up the information, putting the pieces together, theorizing what must have happened and yeah, and stuff of that sort. And I'm not saying it would have been great TV. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't have. But there were a few things that when they did a twist about two-thirds of the way through, it's like, uh, it, they'd set that up, it kind of makes sense, but they could go the way they're going to go, or they could go this other way that could be interesting too. Yeah. Well, they theorize a bioweapon. That mm-hmm. is somewhat horrifying. Well, what was originally being developed at a point back in time, oh, if you take that but flip this one aspect, you could go this other way. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, wait, all of that's a misdirect for this. Mm-hmm. Or this is a misdirect for that kind of, you know. They had some intelligent writing. Well, part of what fascinated me about the bioweapon is like, as we record this, within the past week or so, there have been several articles on the internet about how they're currently theorizing that every person on the planet with blue eyes descends from one original person. You know, it's funny because I was thinking the other day about the sci-fi concept of genetic memory. Mm. 
you remember not only yourself, but your parents. Mm -hmm. Well, take that back a number of generations. There comes a point where figure three generations, a century, maybe four, depending on lifespan, etc. You go back a good couple hundred years, suddenly you may have the knowledge of like an entire continent or something almost yeah. practically. Jeez. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, when you do genealogy, they start saying like Charlemagne mm -hmm. is one of the people who has the most descendants on Earth. For Britain, I think they say John of Gaunt. Mm -hmm. So there's there's like a list of people. Now, having never done any Asian ancestry to speak of, Genghis Khan is not one I'd ever looked at, but it would make sense. But it's always the famous people who have these. I've got to imagine there are some people that aren't known by history, but were very well known because they yes. were, we'll just say, productive. Well, and that is the thing. Most people want to be related to famous people, so yes. the most research has been done on yeah. them is yeah. part of it. Okay, but I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but if you wanted to create a bioweapon, they could wipe out the whole population of Earth. So what, you go after the the 12 tribes of Jacob? Why would you want to wipe out all of Earth? You'd want to wipe all but yeah, presumably exactly. the part you're, you're a part of. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, the fact that they were able to do an entire run on the whole Genghis Khan thing in terms of both the genetic aspect, but also the history of it. Because that's the other behind-the-scenes story to be had here. Is the first one they could have done the whole Anthony and Cleopatra, start with their, their actual history, what we know of it, how that evolved over time, what happened to the remains. Here, the history of Genghis Khan, the military strategist, all of these other things, the creation of the postal system and stuff. All of the things that they just kind of tossed the tidbits out, we could have learned more about in a supporting mm -hmm. series. And then again, here's the whole what happened after he died and the history of it and mm -hmm. the, the story after the story, if you will. One of the things that was really just a minor subplot, but I loved in one of the episodes is when they are being forced to lead some people to one of the places and they get to a point where a bunch of stones are blocking mm. the path. Yes. And the bad guys knock the stones down. And Lexi and Danny are putting the stone back up. Well, Danny's like, no, no, we got to put this up and stuff. It was something that was a cultural heritage or uh, I forget exactly how yeah. they phrased it. It was sacred to the sacred Mongolians. Sacred territory to the Mongolians and stuff. They treated it with respect, whereas these other people did not. Yeah. And then later when things go, you know. Sideways in a major way. Sideways, that's a good way to phrase it. <laughs> they get help from the Mongolians and the other people do not. Yeah, yeah. You know, and all of that played out fairly, I don't say believably, but well, logically, uh, narratively. Narratively, it worked. And as the Mongolians literally led them to safety back by those stones, the Mongolian that was in the lead pointed at the stone they had repaired. Yep, yep. Before leaving. You treated us with, us with respect. We're helping you out in payback. Yeah. 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 I thought that was good. I really liked that. Again, that's some of the stuff with the writing I really enjoyed. And just about, I don't say every scene with Simon, but most of the scenes with Simon. You could see the wheels turning for him. How is he going to play stuff? Other people, how are they going to play him? Mm -hmm. How is this going to work? I mean, that's the kind of character that's fun to watch because he's the ultimate survivalist. He'll do whatever he has to, yeah. to, to make things play his way. Yeah. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much. And 
James Callis is such a great actor for that kind of role. Because when we got the spin at that two thirds of the season point where at the end it's like something happens, there's a change of fortune, a change of fortune, and just like his whole world is pulled out from under him twice in rapid succession. And he's starting to understand the implications of some of what he had just done prior to all of that, how it was going to play out, how it then looked like it was going to play out, and how it's now going to play out. And you could just see Mm -hmm. the, I was, I was playing this angle and now everything is totally changed. Am I going to be able to survive? How do I replay this? You know, how do I recast this? How do I make this work? Yeah. And just the shock, and I'm trying to roll with the punches, but damn, they're coming fast. Yes, yes. So he's one that, again, they ended the season such with, he could be in play next season in a number of different ways. I was going to say, does he ever get a redemption arc? Because I he's... would almost expect that to be the next time, is he comes to Danny and Lexi with, here's what's going on, and not, I need your help, but yeah, something. I was going to say, he... He is a much better character than he was season one. He, he I don't want to say has earned a redemption arc, but he's that step closer. He's much less angry because his whole arc the first time was <laughs> yeah. Hellbent Revenge, which kind of was the Great Khan's arc. So there's a very similar aspect there. I think it comes down to if they get a third season, who are they going up against? Is it a big bad? Do they have the same kind of Hellbent on Revenge mm. or Payback or however you want to phrase it kind of? Mm-hmm mentality is it this big grandiose plan or is it something way more subtle i would love for them to think they're up against a grandiose plan and have them basically have just been kind of assuming you know what i mean it's not actually a grandiose plan but they're so used to going up against grandiose plans that they can't see something simple they're on the hunt for some relic or whatever they're hitting some some pushback but they're always assuming if this is the big plan, who's behind it? And they're looking for a ghost that's not there. Yeah. How do you have that have a satisfying payoff at the end? I mean, the way I would yeah. do it is you have somebody get wind of that and become the boogeyman they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And just play into their thing and make them be, almost be the bad guy. There's almost a Remington Steel aspect to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a number of ways they could go, and I think this writing team has the chops to to go in some very interesting directions. I was so impressed with this season because there was just so much fun and so many scenes where I'm like, okay, I didn't quite see that coming, but I liked it. What would you have them go after in a third season that would give the justification for globetrotting to interesting and unusual places? Danny's a lawyer now. That's what we set up at the end. Danny's now a lawyer, but Chuck is now possibly Vatican intelligence. Mm-hmm. So I'd spend it off Chuck, and I would be going after some Catholic relic. Because then you have as your your flipping point whether or not the Catholics are actually going to want it out there or not. Yeah, I could see that. I was almost going to go for a Jules Verne around the world in 80 days kind of riff in some way. Mm-hmm. In terms of they're looking for a relic connected to that or something of the sort. I think there's got to be a Vatican church aspect to keep Chuck in play. But I think there's also a not something the church wants found or not found kind of aspect. Because we've we've played through that quite a bit this season. So it's something that they have... I would almost have it be 
something that they have interest in being found and returned to some other religious group or mm. something like that in terms of either the church has wronged that group in the past, they're trying to mm-hmm. do make that, amends. or they've got resources the other group doesn't, and again, trying to make everybody you know mm-hmm. better off and such. So if we get a third season and we don't get some aspect of Chuck with the, the Vatican intelligence, major missed opportunity. Yeah. They set him up nicely there. Oh, man, they did some great stuff with him this season and really uh, progressed him from the, I don't say the landlord last season. Honestly, at this point, Chuck and Shaw could have their own show. Yeah, I think so. I do think it was funny that they were basically uh, staying at at Chuck's place first season, Mm -hmm. Shaw's most of this season. Who's it going to be next time? It almost has to be Danny and Lexi's, but who knows? If it wound up being Simon's. That'd be fine. That'd be hilarious, and I think they could they could make that work. Yeah, I I can't imagine this is a cheap show to do just because of the various locations they've got to get to, and, and mm-hmm. do. the travel budget's got to be pretty big on this. They've got some good action sequences. They had a number of good heist sequences. There were enough things that had special effects, even just the con logo emblazoned on the ground at the Vatican and other places and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I imagine much of that was digital, but you know, who knows? But it was a nice flaming logo. Whether they did it practically or digitally, it takes a little money to go do. Yeah. And then there were enough of the scenes of destruction at various places and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And again, some of these, the, the number of extras they had. That's what I was just thinking. Now, I imagine certain times of year, staging a Chinese New Year thing in Hong Kong, probably not that hard to do. They need to practice for the real one anyways, I imagine. Something like that. But yeah, you got to be there at the right time. You got to have the permits. You got to, you know. Mm-hmm. So is this an affordable show for Paramount Plus to keep going with? I don't know. I hope they can find a way to make that work. Me too. And I think there are ways that you could do, I don't say less on location stuff, but I would say more indoor type stuff. But even the indoor stuff they did at the Vatican, I want to know where the hell they shot that. because It was gorgeous. It seemed like it was the Vatican. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was gorgeous. I definitely think they did it in Italy somewhere. Oh, they had to. And likewise, some of it had to be in Hong Kong. Some of it had to be in very, you know, Mm -hmm. locations they were actually at. I would love to see some behind the scenes where and how they shot some of this. Yeah. But trying to find a way to control costs on that, I think they could get creative and do some of that. Where you get the establishing shots, you get enough of them in the key locations to, to sell it, but the rest you could do more affordably elsewhere, potentially. Not that I want them to go that way, but if they had to, I think they could. But if they, if this were something that it's an every other year kind of a thing, I could I could be happy with that. Yeah. Part of it is uh, Matt Barr, the lead, is now on uh, Walker Independence, so there's mm-hmm. scheduling issues to be had, but they can work those kinds of things. We're talking yeah. 13 episodes. Again, Chuck had enough of a, a solo path on this. That it's not like Mike Barr was in every scene of every episode. Yeah. You know, so I think they spread the load out amongst the cast a lot better this time. Yes. Potentially. And even Simon had his own little adventures and stuff. Yeah. So I think they could, I hope they could make the scheduling work. I hope it's getting good enough ratings to get a third season. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if you're looking for something that's got the action adventure, Indiana Jones-ish, globetrotting, you know, treasure-seeking kind of vibe to it, you really ought to check this out. It's fun stuff. Yeah. And if you enjoy Leverage, I think you'll enjoy this. Yeah. 
it's not the go get the bad guy and the heist kind of a thing, but it's it's got a very similar sensibility at times. Yeah. And this had more of the heist aspect and the humor and again that that sensibility. Mm-hmm. But if you like leverage, certainly the second season I think would resonate. Yeah. I'd have to rewatch the first to to really know if, if that was the case or not. It had a similar sense of humor and style to it, but at least at that point, it wasn't something I. It really resonated as as a, a, a leverage ish feel to it, whereas this season definitely did. Yeah, I agree. So fun stuff. Very much enjoyed it. Hope it comes back for more. I agree. Anything else? Nope. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.